Hey, Diggs, welcome to Dennis in the Know, your backstage pass to current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. We are dentistry source for honest, relevant information. And with that in mind, this is JB's News on the Go with Dennis in the Know. So introducing to you with all your relevant information, Dr. Jennifer Bell. A couple different studies have come out this week and I thought was kind of interesting, worth at least discussing a little bit. The first study was uh, presented in the Journal of Dental Education and highlighted the fact that most dentists do not adhere to the BP recommendations by the ADA and often will go ahead and move forward with both uh, required and elective treatment for patients, even when presenting with higher than uh, approved blood pressures. And they also noted that one of the biggest reasons why dentists often will decide to move forward is number one, there hasn't been a lot of documentation on adverse outcomes for treating patients in those higher range blood pressure uh, numbers. And two, that the uh, rate limiting step of patients leaving your office, being turned away for treatment to go seek care with their primary care physician for medication evaluation, et cetera, often significantly delays their return back into the dental office or they don't reappoint again. And so um, I think the conventional wisdom coming out of that study that maybe one could take away would be that the ADA might want to relook at the recommendations and provide some new updated guidance based on updated literature for how dentists should proceed with patients in their office with higher uh, than average blood pressure readings. In an additional study that came out in the Journal of Clinical Pediatrics, there was a study about uh, or asking, basically, wanting to know more information, excuse me, wanting to have more information be available for uh, dentists to offer alternative solutions to fluoride. I don't know about you, but I definitely am getting more pushback from patients and parents about fluoride application And if not pushback, definitely inquiry about whether or not they should be using fluoride, what are the pros and cons of that treatment application, both in office and also in their take-home products. And so uh, the study was simply highlighting the fact that while the AAP has great information out there about fluoride, treatment modalities, application processes, um, dosages, ideal dosage ranges, benefits and value of remineralization using fluoride, there is very little help to clinicians to offer alternative strategies to patients who are not, who are fluoride hesitant. Um, And so I think the article was really trying to push the AAP to relook at some of the new products on the market. We talked about the hydroxyapatite toothpaste that uh, just came out not that long ago, and they're starting to compare data between that and fluoride for remineralization. Uh, and including some of the alternative therapies that might be available. It might be time to start studying some of those because I think the patient population is going to demand an alternative to fluoride. And I think that we owe that to folks to be able to give them choices for treatment. The last article that came out, not really a study, except it was an internal study of Delta Dental patients, but Delta Delta Dental conducted a study. It was the 2023 Senior Oral Health Uh, and menopause report, trying to break the stigma of menopause. They're trying to highlight many of the connections that are being seen between older patients. Did you just say menopause? I did. Okay, I'm just making (laughs) sure. 
Uh, and then um, they wanted to highlight many of the known conditions that patients are reporting after they have gone through menopause. Those things include dry mouth, increased uh, root sensitivity and tooth sensitivity pain. Decay rates seem to go up. Uh, burning tongue syndrome, which we talked a lot about last week. So oral lesions, lichen planus, certainly are the things that I see in my practice for postmenopausal women. So wanting to provide some guidance, <clears throat> identify the fact that women are suffering with oral condition postmenopause and hasn't been studied quite enough to provide enough recommendations. I do think it poses an interesting connection between the oral and medical connection. We're always looking for those opportunities which may then open the door for medical billing for patients who present postmenopause with some of these symptoms. Could there be medical support on the insurance side to help treat? Uh, certainly, if we start to see these reports and can reference this data, maybe we can start to see some financial support for the patients from the medical side. If uh, Because often these patients have, have lost dental benefit. A good number of them are retired and may or may not present with dental insurance. So finding some connection on the, on the medical side may be enough to get them benefit. Now we're going to switch over to the legislative side. Uh, there was a big uh, movement this week with the Bipartisan-Supported Primary Care and Health Workforce Act. It passed through the Health Committee, which is a subcommittee of, of the uh, health care uh, subcommittee with Bernie Sanders and uh, it passed through that committee this week on the 21st. So now it will head towards the Senate. There is, again, will be calls to action, I think, when it is taken up to encourage your members of Congress and the, and the Senate to vote to pass this so that hopefully we can move forward with some proactive steps that we can take, like programming that will help bring dentists to rural communities and offset uh, debt repayments and those types of programs, many of which have been put on hold or decreased in number over the last few years to start pumping those programs back up again to get access uh, both for dentists and medical care providers into those communities who are underserved. And lastly, one of the most odd stories that I have to bring to you tonight. There's a gentleman in Georgia. His name is Dr. Val Kalpok. Kolpakov, K-O-L-P-A-K-O-V, apologies for mispronunciation. He is now the Guinness World Record holder for the most different types of tubes of toothpaste. Yes, Jeff, Chad, you're not going to jump in on that. You, you want to know about menopause, but you don't care about tubes of toothpaste. Yes, in fact, he is the proud owner of 2,037 Bobby has the world's largest collection of potato chip bags. Just saying. Is he in the book as well? He's not in the book, but I, I definitely think he has the world's largest collection of potato chip bags. Just saying. Bye. Bye. And that's Bobby Pepper, a member of our Dinks community. We don't give enough praise to the folks who attend on a regular basis and their idiosyncrasies. Uh, but this dentist in Georgia has now collected 2,037 different types of tubes of toothpaste, did achieve placement in the Guinness Book of World Records, and his collection has been valued at roughly $30,000. Now, these tubes of toothpaste include toothpaste from all over the world and many different countries. Uh, and so that is what makes his collection not only vast, but also unique.
And with that, that's the news. So, gang, that's it for today's show. We want to thank you for tuning in. But more importantly, we want to thank you for being a part of Dennis Simonell. I'm Dr. Jeff Horowitz. I'm Dr. Chad DePlantis. And I'm Dr. Jennifer Bell. And we're Dentists in the Know. Remember, gang, dentistry is an amazing profession, but it's way more rewarding when you're in the know.